How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let them let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Those are verses 9 through 16 of Psalm 119. And you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and today is uh, Monday, December the 28th, or 27th, right? 2021. (laughs) So there are actually no lessons for today or tomorrow in the uh, lectionary, and I have no earthly idea why that would be. So at any rate, I'm going to talk about some other things, and what I want to do is give you some things that are background to the New Testament, give you some thoughts about why I do some of the things that I do, why I study some of the things that I do, and why I bring some of these sources into my teaching. And that's largely because if you want to understand what Jesus is teaching— and why he's teaching specific things, then it's useful to know to whom he's teaching. Well, so to whom is Jesus teaching? He's teaching to first century Jews. And we know that because he said, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He is to be the Jewish Messiah. And so when he comes, almost all of his interactions, save just a couple uh, when people come to him, are with people who are Jewish. And so they bring an understanding of God's Word to the table when they come, right? So so they have a history of interpretation and a history of understanding within the community, and those people are the ones Jesus speaks to. And so the, the issue is, okay, how can we best understand the way he's teaching and what he's teaching? And we can do that by trying to get our heads into some space where we can understand the way his original listeners would have heard him. And so I've spent a significant amount of time over the last, I don't know, 15 years particularly since I started teaching the book of Genesis shortly after I came to Asheville. And and it was because there were a group of men that wanted to learn, right? So they wanted me to teach. And the first thing they wanted me to do, because Left Behind was really, really popular at that moment in time, they wanted me to teach Revelation. And I said, well, we can't, I can't teach Revelation in a vacuum. I need to know what you believe about Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters, which gets you up to... Abraham. So you've got the Tower of Babel, if you're working kind of backwards from there. You've got, you've got Tower of Babel, and then you've got the flood, and you've got the uh, Cain and Abel, you've got creation. So all that stuff that, that falls in those first 11 chapters, so how do you understand that? And they said, well, those are just stories. I said, yeah, well, you can't understand the destruction of God's good creation which is what Revelation is all about. He's crushing creation, destroying it, in order that we might notice. (laughs) But God's destroying what he did in Genesis 1. And so I said, and and 2, by the way. So what I said was, is let's study Genesis. And so about two and a half years later, we finished the study of Genesis. And so during that time, I began to look at, well, what is the history of teaching on the rabbinic side in, in Judaism? And that then became sort of this, this desire to understand how Jesus was understood and heard when he came. What is it that made him a great rabbi? But at the same time, why did they reject him? 
So in order to understand his teaching, I had to get in the mind of those first century listeners. And whether I've been successful or not, I have no earthly idea. I mean, I'm trying is the main thing. And so what I wanted to do is give you a, a sort of a heads up on, on who these people are in first century Judaism and what it is that they already think and bring to the text and why do they think these things. You know, we talk about the written law and the oral law. We talk about those two separate things, and we kind of throw off the oral law without even actually understanding what the oral law is or what it was attempting to do and what they believed about the oral law. And and then how does that get applied and have the ordinary Jew in the street, not a rabbi, not a scribe, not a priest, how did they understand those things? How did, they, how did they know those things? So let's talk about that for a minute. So at the time that Jesus comes into the world in the Incarnation, there's two basic schools within Judaism. So there's two rabbinic schools, and Paul's in one of those, right? So Paul is, is a disciple of Gamaliel, who we see a couple of times, actually. We see Gamaliel in the biblical text, so what we've got is, is that, that he, he is the one who pleads the case for Peter and the other apostles and say, let's not be too hasty in what we do here, because remember others have come along along the way, and they kind of come up and, and they have a season, and then they just kind of wither away. But if something's of God, then woe be unto us if we try and get in front of this thing and stop it in its tracks. We can't do it anyway if it's of God, but it's not really going to be good for us if we do that. And so we know from, from that, we know kind of where Gamaliel comes from, but then we also know from Acts 22 that Paul had been one of his disciples, because that's what rabbis had. They had disciples. Disciples, the, the, the Greek word for that is just mathetes, and it means learner. That's it. It means learner. That's what a disciple is contrasted with with an apostle is one who has already been discipled and is now sent with a message, is what that word means. So at the time, you have two schools of, of, of sort of rabbinic thought, which you can kind of call philosophical thought at some level, with that philosophy is focused on how do I understand the, the Torah, the five books of Moses particularly. Now, you can go on beyond that to the entire Old Testament because there's study that's in the entire Old Testament, but a lot of what they did was apply the law. Think about when somebody comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, who is my neighbor? Well, why do they want to know that? Well, they want to know that because there's a commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. So if I want to understand how to love my neighbor as myself, the first thing I have to do is be able to identify who is my neighbor. And in response to that, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of it, he says, who was the neighbor? And the answer that the person gives, because they hate the Samaritans, is I guess it's the one who did this person good. So that's kind of the, the, the sort of application. What rabbis did was they taught those kinds of things. They answered those kinds of questions. There's another point where somebody comes to Jesus and say, divide the inheritance between me and my brother, and that's because there's a dispute under Jewish law at some level, and this guy's got a position on it, and his brother has a position on it. Well, the people who decided those disputes were the rabbis, and that tradition goes back to Moses. 
Because remember, Moses is the one who sits there and and judges between the people. And then his father-in-law, Jethro, said, this isn't good, man. It's wearing you out. And the people are waiting all day to get your judgments. You need to divide that responsibility. And he did that in response to his father-in-law, Jethro. The same way, in some ways, the disciples did with the um, deacons who were in charge of food distribution. So, but... They did more than that because the first martyr was Stephen, who was a deacon. The first real evangelist we see is Philip, the deacon who goes to Samaria after the after the, the stoning of Stephen. So these rabbis were the ones who were schooled and expert in two things. One is the Torah itself, and the second was in the oral law. And what they believed about the oral law and what they believe to this day is that both the written law and the oral tradition, the law, were given at Sinai to Moses. In other words, what happens is God's giving the Torah, and as he gives the Torah, Moses hears this, and he says, wait a minute, that's not self-explanatory. I have a question. And so God would answer his question, and he says, you need to remember all these things. Don't write them down because the book would be too big, but, but listen and remember these things and pass these answers on that I'm giving you as far as what does this mean and what's the application of it. And so the tradition is that he passed that along to Joshua with the instructions to pass it along, and then we go from Joshua to, well, the period of the judges. And so he would have expanded it more. Joshua would have the people who understood this stuff, and they were never intended to be written down. And so these things just get passed along orally over a long period of time, And finally, in about 200 to 250 A.D., so 200-plus years after the death of Jesus, there's a man called uh, Judah the Prince. And he he would just been kind of the chief rabbi is the reason he was called the prince. He was not, you know, sort of a royal prince in that way. So what Judah the Prince does is he sees that that things are increasing in complexity. The world itself is increasing in complexity. And from the time that the land was conquered and the law was given prior to that, and, and so not only is the world more complex, but also the Jewish communities are spread over a wider geographic area. And so what you need is you need some way of taking the oral tradition of interpretation, which is itself connected deeply to the law, to the Torah. So you need some way of connecting the law that was given in sort of an early Bronze Age period of time to the current situation. And so it's sort of it's how do we apply that stuff when we don't have a temple and we don't have any of those accoutrements or the priesthood? that's active and involved. So how do we apply the law in our situation today? That, that's the main part of what's, what he's trying to get at is how do we do that? And he's trying to do it so that all Jewish communities across the world, whatever the known world would have been for them at that time, it, how do they, so it's, it's applied evenly everywhere. So if you go to a Jewish community in one place, it's not different and its interpretation and application from a Jewish community somewhere else. This is intended to be, be sort of make consistency the rule. And so it needed to be—it was impossible then for that to be orally transmitted faithfully. And so what happened was is that they codified this in something known as the Talmud. Now, so you've got these two rabbinic schools that I had mentioned, though, the, the Hillel group and the Shammai group. 
And there were certain things that they understood in common, and then there were other things where they differed. And the bottom line is Gamaliel tended to be more lenient in his application of the law. Well, both these then get codified into the Torah. They're that important over a very long period of time that pretty much Hillel, who is Gamaliel's grandfather, he was the, that, that rabbinic school becomes sort of the dominant one in the Talmud. It, 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 they're expanding and becoming more lenient, and, and which means that, for instance, that, that one of the jobs of a rabbi was to draw the fence around the law in his interpretation. In other words, how lenient can it be? And if you want to see a good example of drawing a fence around the law, then listen to Eve's response when the serpent tempts her. We're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor are we even to touch it. Well, there's no commandment not to touch it, but but. It makes sure that you don't come close to transgression if I put a fence around that tree and keep you further away from it. And so, it, it, as I said, the, the, the tradition of Hillel was more lenient than the tradition of Shammai. I'm just going to give you a couple of instances of where they would, um, would differ. If you, who would be admitted to Torah study? And, and Shammai, the more a strict one, believed only worthy students should be admitted to study Torah at all. Hillel believed that Torah should be taught to anybody in the expectation that it would transform their lives, they would repent, and they would become worthy. Another place where they would differ is in white lies. And, and, and it, the, the argument turns on, do you tell an ugly bride that she's beautiful? Shammai said, no, it's wrong to lie. Period. You've got. You don't say that. You don't say that you're beautiful. You don't have to say you're ugly, but but you don't say she's beautiful. And Hillel said all brides are beautiful on their wedding day. So and then in divorce would be the final one that I would say that Shammai, the more strict one, said that a man could only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, but Hillel allowed divorce for even trivial offenses such as burning a meal. So when somebody asked Jesus about um, what are your thoughts on divorce? then they're attempting at some level, a lot of the questions that are posed to Jesus are attempting to answer one thing. Which of these two great rabbinic schools are you lining up with? And Jesus doesn't line up with either one of them sort of consistently. What he does do is he aligns himself with God. But, But their way of thinking was always to see those in two camps. And so which camp are you in? And, and that way, it makes it easier for people, right? Always makes it easier if I can put a label on you. Oh, he's one of those. He's a conservative. He's a liberal. He's a this. He's a that. I mean, it's easier if I can do that to you. And so that's what they're attempting to do. And so what you get is, is those disputes that go along. But and ultimately, the more lenient approach is the Hillel approach is the one that kind of carries the day over a period of time. And so what I want to talk about kind of quickly today, is, is something that, a document that, that's important in Judaism that you've heard about before, and that's called the Talmud. And the Talmud is the thing that I told you that Judah the Prince puts together in about 250 to 300. But actually, there are two Talmuds. There's a Jerusalem Talmud, and then there's a Talmud that originated in Babylon. And shockingly and surprisingly, if you don't already know this, the one that's the most important in Judaism today is actually the one that comes from Babylon. It's a little bit later and it incorporates a lot of the Jewish, the Jerusalem material, and then it also incorporates the disputes between the Jerusalem uh, group and the Babylonian group. So you get both those things 
at the same time. And so you you get this thing, this tradition that's been passed down. But within the tradition, there can be disagreement between groups of rabbis. And so that's something that you really need to understand. And that's the way that Judaism understands everything is that things are worked out in conflict. And when I mean conflict, I don't mean battles. I mean argumentation. So essentially, it's okay to disagree. You got to support your position. You got to argue your position, and then we'll come to either we come to a synthesis or we decide that one of the other of us is correct. And so that's the way it works out. And so the way Talmud is meant to be studied is actually with someone else. It's not intended for you to sit down and read the Talmud on your own. And the reason is because you can't think of every objection. You can only think in one stream. And so typically we're not able to hold that tension. And so we need somebody else to bring the tension so that we have to actually think a little bit better and a little bit harder about this. And so that's the point of how Talmud is meant to be studied. Now, Talmud just means instruction or learning. And it's divided, the Talmud is, into two different parts. And the first part is the Mishnah. And and the Mishnah is sort of a case law approach to being able to understand how to interpret the law. And it can become, it it can uh, contain things like, it's going to be a dispute over what constitutes a family, and so that dispute can, can look at some what we would think of as pretty obscure texts and draw conclusions from those texts. And they're, they're frequently texts that we'd never even consider as Christians. We just kind of read them, blow past them, and move on. But the reality is there's, there's a depth to studying Torah, and the belief begins, the Talmud it, it is born out of the idea that there's not a single wasted word in all of the Torah. There's nothing that you should just yada yada over. That, that we should actually pay attention to everything there because every bit of it's teaching us something. It's an intensive way of thinking about the Word of God in ways that we frequently don't, frankly, as Christians. We, we tend to move too much in the surface meaning and, and of level of things, and we determine as we read it what we think is important and what's not. And in, in the rabbinic mind, every word, not just every word, in fact, every letter, has is fraught with peril that we could get it wrong, but it's also freighted with meaning. So both those things come at the same time. And so what you get on the first part is the, the Mishnah, which is the, the sort of the instruction and the repet- it's taught by repetition. And so by repeating it over and over and studying this part over and over, then you begin to think in a different way. And so it's case law after case law after case law, but what that, what that gives you, if you're studying law in the in American sense, for instance, if you're studying law, you read a lot of case law, and the reason that you read a lot of case law is not so you can memorize what happened in that case, but that you can see how the law works and how legal minds interpret the law in different instances so that when you go before a judge who has been taught the same things and who knows the same things, that you can apply your situation to that situation. So what was argued here, and and the, the winning argument in this case, you will argue now, is applicable over here in my case, even though the facts and the circumstances are different, the principles are the same. And so you cite that case law and say courts have ruled these things. And this case is similar to that case in this way. And so it, you're learning to think in a particular way as you repeat 
repetitively study these cases. You're beginning to see things that then apply over in another situation. For instance, one of the things that that I heard a a rabbi talk about not too long ago had to do with a a husband's duty as far as sex is concerned vis-a-vis his wife. And it, it, it it depends on what you do for a living. And so one of the things is if you if you drive a camel herd, so if that's your job is is you lead camel herds, then then whenever you're home, you you need to be active with your wife. And so, all right, there's not too many people who do that today, but there are people who drive trucks over long distances and are gone from long periods of time. And so they apply that case law of camel herding to truck drivers. And that makes perfect sense. It's the way you learn to think. You know, you take the principle and you apply it to the reality. And so that's what the Mishnah is. And then the second part of the Talmud is called the Gemara. And what the Gemara is, is, is actually the argumentation that produced the interpretation. So you get the minority report as well as the majority report, and you read these things, and then you continue to have that same argument along the way. But you also know what arguments have also have already been made and how those arguments were overcome. And maybe they, maybe in your mind they haven't been overcome, and so now what it's intended to do is, is force you to continue to think about that. So it's a, it's a, the Gemara, it has to do with the mastery of that existing transmission, which is opposed to the Savara, which is the deriving of new results by logic. So you're trying just to know what the law says, that's the Torah, what does it mean, and then how do you apply it? Have you got a problem with any of that idea? I don't. What has replaced that for us as Christians is the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. But I want you to understand how the how Jews handle these things and why these things are so important. Now, the Gemara itself it is derived from three names, <clears throat> G-M-R. There are no vowels in Hebrew. So it, Gemara is trans, it spells out the first letters of three words, four words, sorry, Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, and Uriel, three, four archangels. And, and what they believe is that the, if you're studying, when you're delving into this, that those angels will protect you and they will guide you into all truth. And so Gemara is Gabriel, Michael, Raphael, and Uriel. And so we believe the Holy Spirit protects us in that same way. But they come down to the tradition of the elders to come to these things. And and we can break free of the tradition of the elders because we follow Jesus, who is the ultimate rabbi, because he is the word of God. But I want you to understand why I bring some of these things in. It's to help you understand the Jewish mind in the first century. And now the Talmud may not have come until the third century, but what they say, and and you can see it in the... um, in the text of the New Testament, is is that so much that's in the Talmud relates to the, the arguments that were being had then between the, the houses of Hillel and Shammai. And so that stuff is what forms the Talmud 
it's an important thing for us to understand the Jewish mind at that time. They're looking to these rabbis and these scribes to interpret the law for them. Not because the people don't want to know the Word of God, but because they know the Word of God is more complex than a simple reading of the Word itself would seem. There are many questions that are left unanswered, like, who is my neighbor? And so it's those things that they come to rabbis and they ask. And it's the interesting thing is, is that, that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of sets out his own path in, in the way that he interprets law. And so he'll say things like, it, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you this, that if a man lusts after a woman in his heart, then he has committed adultery. And so they would hear that and they would go, oh, you're on the Shammai side. You're on the on the more sort of um, strict interpretation of the law. You're drawing a fence around what does it mean to commit adultery? What is it? You've heard it said, don't murder. Well, I tell you that if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. And that would go back to the Cain and Abel story, where Cain gets the word, look, sin's crouching at your door, and it would master you, but you must master it. And so he's, he's already formed this hatred in his heart that will then flow out into the murder of his brother. And so Jesus certainly always has a strict interpretation of things. And then they'll ask him questions, though, to, to determine where he's coming from. And these are things that need interpretation because it's not self-evident what it is. There are certain, so when people say things like, Jesus never said anything about dot, 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 that's the dumbest argument anybody will ever make. And here's the reason. They only asked him, and he only taught about things that were not 100% clear in the law. So nobody's going to ask him, for instance, is it okay for me to have sex with a goat? Because the law says that's an abomination. So I I know that anything the law says is an abomination, Jesus is not going to speak about because he doesn't need to. That's sufficiently clear that anyone who reads it can understand it. And that's the way they believe law was written. The things that, that need to be incredibly clear are. The things that require interpretation, that there's some, some, uh, some interpretive um, opening for, that's fine. God intended to leave it that way so that we would continue to ask the question, what does that mean today? And so that's why that argument that Jesus never said anything about is the dumbest argument you'll ever hear. Nobody needed to question him about certain kinds of things. And so it's important to the Jewish mind, and it's important to us to exercise the gift of the Holy Spirit by continuing to ask the question, what does that mean, and how do I apply that today? I'm going to leave you with one little thing today about that has to do with with what the Mishnah teaches. This is a, a typical thing the Mishnah would teach, and I want you to see how this would apply to Jesus as I read this. Because <clears throat> we can ask the question, why does he wait until he's 30 years old or so to begin his career, right, to, become, to begin this public career? And I want you to see if you can see the answer to why Jesus as a Jewish man, speaking to Jewish people, would have waited until he was 30 years old. All right, so here's what the Mishnah says is the educational process for a young Jewish boy in Jesus' time. At five years old, one is fit for the Scripture. In other words, you can read it. At 10 years old, the Mishnah 
So you can be taught the, the, the meaning of the text, not just what does it say, but what does it mean and how is it applied when you're 10 years old. I mean, so we talk about things like the age of accountability and all that kind of stuff. But, but at 10, they believe that, that you were old enough to begin to understand and apply the law because it had some application in your life now that was different at 10 than it was at 5, and then at 13 for the fulfilling of the commandments. And from that is where we get the bar mitzvah, and that just means son of the commandments, S-O-N, by the way, son of the commandments. And so what happens is at bar mitzvah that, that a young Jewish boy gets up and he reads a portion of the Torah publicly, and the, the, the point of that is to prove that he is now capable of understanding it, because you need to be able to understand it in its original language, because the language is that important on the Jewish side. The, the, the literal Hebrew language is important in understanding the Torah. And so at 13, you stand before the congregation and you prove that and you become a man that day. And it's the happiest day in a Jewish man's life, a Jewish father's life, because now that boy stands on his own before the Lord. If until that time, I had to answer for his transgressions because he didn't understand it. If he didn't understand it, it was completely my fault. So at 13, you're responsible for the fulfilling of the commandments, the keeping of the law. And at 15, the Talmud is required for you to understand it and to interpret it on your own. You should have been educated well enough now that you can argue a position and at 18, the bride chamber, you're fit for the bride chamber. At 20, pursuing a vocation, some sort of a job. And at 30, for authority, the ability to teach others. And so while we may throw off on the oral law, you see here, Jesus subjected himself to at least this portion of it in waiting until he was 30 because in the Jewish mind, he wasn't capable of become a teacher until he was 30. So that would help explain why he waited until he was 30, because the people to whom he would speak would have questioned him in a different way if he had tried to begin earlier than that.